Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Zivi Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And speaking of books, I have two of my own books coming out this spring and summer. Princess Charming is a picture book, which debuts on April 19th, and Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature comes out on July 1st, and it is truly a labor of love. I hope you'll pre-order, order, and join me on tour as I go across the country. You can find out more at zivyowens.com or bookendsmemoir.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at zivyowens because I always post about everything. Enjoy the show. Victoria V.E. Schwab is the author of Gallant. She is also the number one New York Times bestselling author of more than 20 books, including the acclaimed Shades of Magic series, the Villain series, the Cassidy Blake series, and the international bestseller The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. First Kill, a, v- a YA vampire series based on Schwab's short story of the same name, is currently in post-production at Netflix, with Emma Roberts's Bellatrice Productions producing. When she's not haunting Paris streets or trudging up English hillsides, she lives in Edinburgh, Scotland, and is usually tucked in the corner of a coffee shop, dreaming up monsters. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. We're going to discuss Gallant and Invisible Life and Addie LaRue and everything you do and you. So there you go. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. First of all, V.E. Schwab versus Victoria Schwab. Explain. Yeah, you know, the answer has changed a little bit over the years. Basically, I started out as Victoria Schwab, and I was writing primarily YA and middle grade, so for younger audiences. 
And then when my very first novel for adults came out called Vicious, it had an illustrated cover. And I just thought to myself, oh my God, I don't want my eight-year-old readers accidentally picking up vicious. It's fine if they do it with intention or if it's, you know, a family choice, but I just didn't want them stumbling across it. So I was like, it's good to have a little bit of separation of church and state. What I didn't realize at the time when I made that decision was that I was saving myself some grief and creating other griefs because (laughs) the adult genre industry, which is now primarily where I write, especially 10 years ago, but still to this point, is uh, extremely sexist just like shockingly sexist. Like the number of times fans have come up to me at events and said, oh my God, I'm so glad I didn't know you were a woman. I never would have picked this up. What? I know, I know. It's like shocking to hear. And so, and then I became very grateful for the fact that I had this division. But as I went on and I wrote more books, to be honest, I I felt more like VE. It seemed to embody my brand and my identity. It also gave me a little bit of protection because- the more public you become as a figure, the more people begin to conflate, you know, the name on the cover with the person behind the book. And I was seeing people talking about author me as if it was person me, as if they Mm. knew me. And I realized that I wanted a little bit of separation, a little bit of armor. So I'm Victoria to my friends. I'm Victoria in conversation, but VE on the books is what going forward it will only be regardless of the age that I'm writing for because I feel like it both represents me, but also like it gives me a chance to have that slight difference between person and persona that always exists, but it's really hard to remember when people are talking about you as if they know you. Interesting. Oh, I like that. I find that fascinating. I actually recently interviewed a man named Jeff Hoffman and for the hardcover, yeah. It's called Other People's Children. They had him be J.R. Hoffman. But then for the paperback, they made him Jeff Hoffman, which oh. I found fascinating also. And people couldn't believe he was a man. So you just never know, I guess. You just never, ever know. And it really speaks to a lot of the presumptions that we make as readers about what kinds of people write what kinds of books. Yes. Well, first of all, shame on whoever is saying those things to you or thinking <laughs> those things. Like, what the heck? I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Well, that is interesting. I also find it super fascinating, this idea that the author, that people feel like they know everything about you because they've read some of your books and what you put in the book. You're not even writing memoir. You're writing all, no. you know, what I mean? like, how could they possibly know? Well, and also I do think it's just, you know, when critique takes a personal bent, which I just think is the nature of having an online identity these days and also just the nature of the forums for readers. Every now and then, most 99% of the time, people are very respectful. And if they take issue with a book or if there's something they don't like, they confine it to the books. But because of the time in which we live, sometimes it'll just become slagging off on the writer of those books. And I feel like it's a little easier for me to remember that there's a fictional version of me that lives in those people's heads not a real version. And look, I have a social media profile. Like I'm very large on Instagram. That's where I live. And I try to be as kind of honest and transparent as possible. And I think, again, that probably feeds into the idea that people know the totality of me instead of a curated portion of my life. Interesting. I I ran into a a man I don't really know very well at all. I've met him in passing once, but I I was at this Pan America event. Anyway, and he stopped me and was like, you know, I know everything about you because I follow you. So I feel like there's this, you know, one-sided intimacy here. So let's just keep talking. And I was like, 
just trying to get to the bathroom. Exactly. <laughs> that, that's so perfectly put one-sided intimacy. And it's really difficult because the industry tells us to cultivate it. Mm-hmm. And I want that level of accessibility because I found that over the last 10 to 12 years of being in publishing, when my readers are involved and included in the process and are really seeing what goes into making the book, they feel even more of a desire to champion that work and me because they were there as it was being built, as it was being made. And I like that sense of community and inclusion, but it is a one-sided intimacy in that I'm, even though I'm being authentic, I'm very much choosing which pieces of myself to share. Yes. When I interviewed Mary Laura Philpott, sorry, I don't know why I keep talking about other authors. We are focusing no, no, on no, you. No, I love it. I much but prefer. when I was just interviewing her about her latest book, Bomb Shelter, she was like, look, there are 28 chapters. Like yeah. there are basically 28 stories. Those are the ones I picked. That is not a person. That is not a lifetime. And I just found that so compelling because you forget as a reader that what you're reading is a subsection. Like it's a sub, you know, yeah. it's a tiny, tiny portion of what could be shared. You know, but- I kind of think about it a lot. And this comes up as a theme in The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, which is a, a, I actually, like, I appropriated a conversation that I had with one of my best friends with their permission, who they're a professional photographer. And I came up in fine arts, not in photography. And we were talking about the presumption that a photograph is, has more veracity. Mm. That just like a memoir would over fiction, right? That there's a greater sense of honesty to it. And my friend was breaking down for me. She goes, absolutely not. It's entirely fiction because I'm choosing what to include and what to exclude. I'm curating the frame. I'm, I'm lying essentially just as much as a painting would in that you can't trust what you see. But I feel like with memoir versus fiction, we're going down a very philosophical. I know, I know. But (laughs) but I feel like there's an illusion of veracity where what you have to understand is, yes, while the stories are probably hopefully all true, they are being compiled and curated to present a specific image. Yeah, or a particular truth designed to make a point or something, right? Also, like, let's not like get away from the fact that like memoirs are entirely subjective to their own creators. Like there is no such thing as like the truth or the history as it happened, only as it was perceived by those who are writing about it. So yeah, I kind of a shortcut. I, I, I have a memoir coming out soon. And in the beginning, I wrote if you were involved in any of these scenes and remember it completely differently, like you're probably right. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like exactly. I don't know. This is just how I remembered it, but people are always correcting me. I have a terrible memory. I mean, I do my best. You know, this yeah. is literally how I remember it clearly. But what if I'm wrong? I could literally never do memoir because, and this goes on with my friends and family all the time. I have this traumatic response to creativity where I have like short-term memory loss about the creative process. So that I'm 24 books in now at this point. And yet every single time I sit down to write, I go through the exact same version of psychosis. (laughs) And everyone in my life has receipts, right? They're like, here's an email you sent me nine months ago where you word for word said the same thing about your last book. I'd not... It's not a like a pretension. I don't remember it. Like it's like I talked to a therapist about it recently, and she's like, "Well, it's a traumatic response that we block out things that it's so it's like the same thing that people will say about pregnancy often, which is like if you remembered it accurately, you'd probably never repeat it." <laughs> and I feel like in so many ways, like creativity mirrors that same kind of trauma response, where if we could accurately remember everything that we felt while going through it, we probably wouldn't be as keen to repeat the process. 
I I have four kids and my little guys who are now seven and eight were asking me some questions about them and they were little, little, or they showed me some video we found on my phone and I was like, you guys, I literally like don't really remember any of this these entire years. Like, I can't even admit this to myself. It's too embarrassing. Like, obviously I was there and sometimes the picture drums up the memory for me. But when I just try to like think of the memories, I'm like, I, I know I was there. Yeah. I wonder if it's something unique to artists and writers where there's a piece of our brain that is always occupied elsewhere. So mm-hmm. even when I'm present, I think about it with the drafting process, especially that even when I'm present, there's probably about 25% of me that's not that's trying to keep the plate spinning in my head. So afraid that if I turn my attention fully away from the draft that I'm writing, something will fall apart. Interesting. Yeah. I actually, a couple of years ago, maybe like 10 years ago, really thought I might have some sort of brain disorder because I was forgetting so much stuff. I was even starting to get lost. And I talked to a neurologist about it and he was like, if you're not paying attention to begin with, your brain cannot imprint something as a memory because you're not even fully experiencing because you're not attending to it. You know, it's like why you can shampoo your hair and then like two minutes later be like, did I even do that? I don't know because I wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't paying any attention. So if you're literally doing something and paying no attention to it, then it can't be stored away for later. That is so helpful to think about too, because I make that joke of like, I can keep a thousand pages of story in my head, but I can't remember like what I ate yesterday. And it's like, because I'm not, because I'm not actually present for a lot of the tasks. I'm working on it. I feel like if the pandemic has taught me anything, it's like presence, yep. but yeah, brains are weird. Brains like, are weird. Summation, yeah. Brains are real strange. I have the same thing. I could tell you about so many plots and characters in these books. And I'm like, why, why do I choose to remember stories and books that I read years ago and not you know, this kid's friend's birthday party or something or other. Like, why? Why, well, I don't I, know what why am I week? prioritizing that? I don't know what day of the week it is. I'll forget things. Like, I won't remember, like, if I've already done a task. I, and it's because it's, my brain is always, sometimes recently it feels like too, I always say, I'm like, yeah, lately I've felt like butter spread on too many pieces of bread. Like, I just don't I love feel- that. I feel the same. That is such a great analogy. I'm going to, like, attribute yeah. this to you and use it because I- I, that is exactly how I feel. There's not like, enough butter or there's too much bread. There's one of these two things is true. <laughs> yeah. Just keep like waiting for some, some shoe to drop or whatever, some bread, piece of bread. To, I don't know. <laughs> but I love that you're attributing that to creative people because that's putting a positive spin on this issue. You know, I, mean, I, think it's a deal, I think it's a deal with the devil, like not to thematically bring back to like Addie, but I absolutely feel like there are pros and cons and it's like a choice. I don't feel like I could maintain a measure of sanity if I didn't write. Like it's a way in which I take the, the, the snarl of yarn that is my head and make straight lines. But at the same time, I am also that writer who tells people if there's anything else that will make you feel satisfied, do that instead. Just because like it's, I'm, I'm somebody who doesn't really like to sugarcoat the creative process. And I think it's so lonely and it's so arduous that unless you go in with like eyes open as to what it's going to claim from you, like I am, I know why as a society we romanticize artists and in artists, I obviously like that's an umbrella term I'm using for like all of us in that are creating. But at the same time, I think sometimes the romanticization of it can make it even lonelier when you're struggling because you start to think, well, everyone else seems to just be having a grand old time. So if I'm really struggling, does that 
is that a reflection of me then and my abilities instead of the fact that art is hard? Well, what piece of it is makes you struggle the most? Is it the idea generation? Is it the sentences? Like when you find at your loneliest, like yeah. wh- what is that? What exactly are you struggling with? The imperfection. So like I love brainstorming and I love the final polish that I put on my words. The imperfection of a first draft, knowing that like, it's one of the reasons Addie took so long to write is that for five or six years, I just didn't want to ruin it by putting it on paper. I knew I had this idea in my head. And as long as it was in my head, it was perfect. It was flawless because it was not real. It was just all potential energy. And then the act of writing something down, it translates it to kinetic energy and something's lost. And I am so averse to the inevitable failure that is a first draft. First draft is a controlled failure. It is losing something between your brain and the page. And then over the course of revision, you hopefully gain that back. But I struggle so much with my own sense that I'm ruining it by writing it in the first place. And it's like having to come to terms with the fact that I would rather have something exist and be flawed than not exist and be perfect. That's fascinating. <laughs> it's, that, is, that is really fascinating. unhealthy. No, unhealthy. Um, no, no, I don't think it's unhealthy. It's just really interesting. I mean, yeah. as is the idea that it already lives fully formed, right? That we are just scribes trying to transport something from from one place to another as if we're like FedEx messengers or something. I just, I have the proof on paper that I'm capable of doing the thing. Mm -hmm. And I have the proof that like, if I go back and look at it, it doesn't seem like I wrote it, but I'll remember that like, I didn't like it in the beginning, but that's the main fight I have with everyone in my life where they'll be like, you felt this way about Addie. And I'm like, no, I didn't. I loved Addie the whole time. And they're like, excuse me, you hated Addie for like nine years. You didn't want to do it. And, And it's like, I retcon my relationship to the first draft. And that's the thing I wish I couldn't, I wouldn't do. Because if I just had a little bit more sense of presence and awareness as to how difficult the first draft is for me. I also don't know if you do this. I'm sure you do. Everyone I've met does it to some degree, wherein like, I'll even look at something that I wrote. Sure, you you know, you never want to look at the finished product versus a first draft, but I'll look at something I wrote like a week ago or a day ago. And I'll be like, wow, past me was much better at this than present me. (laughs) I'm like, we're the same person. But in my brain, it's like, oh, I can't do this anymore. I did it a week ago, but that was a different version of me. I'm not capable of doing that anymore. Yes, I totally understand that. (laughs) I'm like, I don't know if I could do that again. Like someone read a sentence I wrote in some random essay and they're like, this particular sentence, like this is it for me. It unlocked this side of the thing. I'm like, first of all, I don't remember writing that sentence. (laughs) Like it doesn't even sound familiar as you read it back to me. I mean, of course I did, right? In that, you know, moment where I was just like, you know, but second of all, I I don't know. Yeah. It's just like this. It's almost like a dissociative response. It is. It is. That's what I'm getting to. Like it is complete dissociation and it's kind of like, it can be magical if you're not as anxious, I guess, as I am. But like if I, my friends who are more able to just lean in and trust fall into the creative process are also the friends who are like very willing to delete 50,000 words if it goes in the wrong direction. And like my anxiety it feels like my 
determination to not quit stems from like having an end point in mind, having roadmaps along the way that will stop me from abandoning it because like I will always be the harshest critic. I'm always the one that's like, it's not good enough. I'm like, of course it's not good enough. You've written 15,000 words of a book that doesn't exist. But in my mind, I'm like, it's not good enough. No one's going to like this. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> I have also noticed having interviewed, you know, over a thousand authors and being, you know, having anxiety myself and everything, like the prevalence of anxiety disorders among authors is something I find very welcome and familiar, <laughs> but it's, I think, very widespread. I think there is a high correlation. Oh, I will tell you, it's also one of the reasons, like, I love memoirs, and I specifically, like, gravitate towards memoirs and interviews in terms of as a listener with creative people, but especially with creative people in different fields. Mm -hmm. It's like, I just listened to, like, an hour-long interview with Harry Styles about his new album, and I feel like what an education in the universality of like the artistic experience of us all. Like he talks about like just basically being in that place where you've had a massive success and how do you become liberated by that instead of paralyzed by it? And it's the same thing Elizabeth Gilbert talked about in her interview after Eat, Pray, Love. And it's like, I just find the, I don't find comfort from my own past experience because I don't trust it, but I find comfort from knowing that other creatives in vastly different walks and levels of experience are all on the minute level, just struggling with like the same, the same neuroses. Yep. <laughs> really interesting. I know it's sort of, it's different. I'm like in my head, like spinning around on this thought because athletes, right. Take an athlete who practices the same thing over and over and the body remembers it. They could still make mistakes, right. They could slip off the beam or they could footfall or, you know, whatever it is they're doing, but their body also like helps them out and remembers it. Whereas I feel like with more creative things, the body is completely useless. No. It's just a, right. You know what I mean? Like you can't no muscle even memory. Yeah. No muscle, no muscle memory. I also wonder if just athletes are just far better at being present and mindful <laughs> because they have to be mm -hmm. like, I just, I envy that I used to be an athlete and like, I was like a soccer player for 13 years and I was a competitive fencer for seven. And like, 
the only times I ever messed up were the ones when I was in my own head instead of in the moment. It's like one of the reasons I was, I didn't go further with it as a fencer specifically. I was like nationally ranked in things, but like I, I couldn't, I couldn't get out of my head. Like I couldn't just be there. Some part of me was always, you know, already analyzing it. So I don't know. Like I say, I don't think I'd be, I think I'd be good at other things. I don't know. I, this is the only thing I've ever found that like actually like makes me feel crazier than I already am. Like, and I know it's crazy in a derogatory, like I'm crazy. Like I have mental health issues. So like, but it is something that definitely doesn't make me feel less crazy. <laughs> you are not crazy. I don't know what mental health issues you, you purportedly have, yeah. but I don't feel like you are actually, cra- I'm just going to go on a limb and say that. Yeah. Uh, the, the creative process certainly augments all of it, doesn't it? Yes. But also um, weirdly rewards us for it. Mm-hmm. Like that's the problem. It's like, well, yeah. so we're being rewarded for our process. <laughs> yes. I know my husband play, we used to play competitive tennis and I ask him, like, well, what are you thinking about when you play? Because I'm always like at every shot, I'm like, knees down, racket back. Do you know what I mean? Like every, like yeah. I'm always reminding myself I have a constant dialogue. And he's like, oh, I think about nothing. I, you know, I only think about, yeah. like I'm right there. I'm like, what do you mean? You know? And I'm also like, that's why I keep interrupting. I'm like, okay, so that flight we were going to take, you know, and he's like, what? <laughs> that's why I can't play golf. I'm like, no, no, no. You know, I, I can't do these things. I, it's, yeah. It's too, okay. it's too neurotic. Yeah. Well, gosh, I feel so understood. Amazing. I don't need a therapist. I just need like a creative support circle at least once a week for people just to weigh in on like what their creative struggle was that week. Totally. Yeah. So helpful and free, yeah. you know, amazing. You can save exactly. all this time and money. Okay. Well, Maybe we should at least discuss what your For latest sure, book yeah. is about. Do you want to know? <laughs> I don't know. My Gallus. publicist is going to yeah. listen to this and she's going to be like, damn it, Victoria. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. I'm, it's me too. I'm like, no, 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 no. Although no, to be that. honest, you know, as you were saying, that ownership that readers mm-hmm. feel, I believe it extends to just knowing the author more it makes oh, yeah. you more invested in the work. So for me, you know, this conversation where now I understand a little more where you're coming from is much more interesting than just hearing about, you know, how much time you spend writing or what your writing process is. Like this is fascinating to me. So I'm hoping people listen. I don't, re- I mean, I'm hoping people listen here, but ultimately <laughs> I'm doing this because I want to yeah. be, you know, um, intellectually stimulated and find things interesting. So, you know, I'm sorry, listeners, if this is boring, but I guarantee people are finding this interesting. So. <laughs> And more willing to read Gallant. Yeah, so okay. tell me about this book. Uh, so Gallant, really a great way to measure the pandemic because it's the first novel that I wrote during the pandemic and then it came out. We were still in the pandemic. Gallant is my first all ages read. Uh, I've written middle grade YA and adult. And this is the first one that kind of defied the boundaries of those shelving tactics, and which we can talk about in a second. But as far as the story, I like to say it's The Secret Garden meets Crimson Peak. It is a story of a teenage girl named Olivia Pryor who has spent the vast majority of her short life in an orphanage. Nothing of her family's except for a journal that was found with her. The journal has entries that seem to devolve from her mother that seem to devolve into madness and illustrations that make no sense. But at the back of it is a letter from Olivia's mother to Olivia that warns her she will always be safe as long as she stays away from Gallant. For years, Olivia has no idea what that means until she receives a note from an uncle she's never met inviting her to come home to the family estate, which is called Gallant. She gets there and she finds no uncle 
and a house falling into disrepair and a garden with a wall with a locked door that seems to lead nowhere. That's amazing. That's all I'll say about that. (laughs) I loved your introductory letter where you talk about doors and the fascination, how books themselves are doors, but also just how enticing it is to stumble upon a door and how you found one once in a garden. And then you were so, you were so excited that you couldn't even ruin it by trying to open it and finding out what was there. I just didn't want to be let down. Like to find a door standing alone in the middle of an empty lot. I just wanted to believe that if I opened it, it would lead somewhere else. And I wanted to live in the mystery of that. I think that's probably why I write fiction (laughs) is just to like concoct what's on the other side of that door, but also to kind of inspire the doubt of the real. Like I just want, those are the stories I loved most when I was younger is like the ones that where the magic and the supernatural is layered so closely over reality that you start looking around at your own world and wondering where the cracks are and if there might be. Like one of the best examples I can ever give is that I wrote a novel called Vicious, which is about supervillains that are, their powers are generated by near-death experiences, okay? And so I'll never forget that at like 3 a.m. one morning, I got an, a, a fan letter, an email from a man who clearly was awake because he just needed to know that that's not like a real thing, right? Like he just basically had a very long-winded way of being like, I just want to make sure like this isn't, this isn't like a documented, but like, and I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to make you wonder and doubt because that I think cracks open the door into much more interesting places. It's, there's almost a lie in the witch in the wardrobe vibe yes. to it as well, right? Yeah. Well, I've always responded more to something like C.S. Lewis than to Tolkien for that exact reason. Tolkien is a land that you will only ever access through the pages of that book. There is no train from here to there. Whereas portal fiction like C.S. Lewis, like Galland, like Shades of Magic, another one of mine, is offering you a literal doorway and saying, if you just have to find it, if you can just go into your world and find the right door, you'll get there. Phantom Tollbooth, maybe that's yeah, yeah. Another, I'm like portal fiction. I've never even thought to describe. Oh yeah, that portal way. fantasy is that, a, is that a is that a whole genre that I, okay? Yeah, portal fantasy would be an entire subgenre that just is literally like creates a doorway. So, mm-hmm. Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe is a perfect example. Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman is a perfect example. Even Stardust by Neil Gaiman, it's a boundary. Really, mm-hmm. it's a boundary. Like you have a physical boundary that needs to be crossed. Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. The upside down, like any place where a secondary world sits up against our world hmm. is a portal fiction. And and your character can go from here to there. Do you feel like that helps you make sense of the current world? I think all fantasy in some way plays with the current world and like how far you want to depart from it. I think what I love about fantasy is that you get to, because you're controlling the rules, you get to control what's normal. Mm-hmm. And like there's fantasy, right, that takes one step away from normal and there's fantasy that takes 25 steps. And I love that all of that is fantasy. Like The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue is a fantasy novel. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't think of it as that way because it's set in our world and like it seems to behave like our world. And I brought the magic into our world instead of taking the reality out of our world. But it's still fantasy. But I would say it's probably one to two steps fantasy, where something like Shades of Magic, another one of mine, is like 10 steps fantasy. I think Gallant is like three because it's so simple. It's a doorway and a mirror verse, basically. And 
you know, so much of me trying to write this novel was trying to figure out for myself what was on the other side of the door. Like for the first three or four years, I thought I was writing a fairy tale. And that meant, okay, fairy tale is like a classic portal fantasy borderline world here and there. And it's really usually the line between the domestic and the wild, the here and the there, the like cultivated land and the forest. there, There tends to be like very specific tropes in fairy tales. And I just kept staring at this door, this locked door in the wall at the back of the garden in the house that I wrote. And I just thought, it's not fairy tale. And then one day I realized I was writing an underworld tale. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's the difference, right? That's the difference. It's not, it's not here and there as in domestic and wild. It's here and there as in life and death. And once I figured that out, everything just kind of like clicked like tumblers in a lock into place. But yeah, I'm, I'm always just kind of asking myself, how many steps do I want to take away from the world as it exists in this moment? Wow. Fascinating. And I, <laughs> and you're turning it into a movie, right? Uh, the Netflix something for- Oh, no. That's X. a different one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's different. So my first Netflix show actually comes out in two and a half weeks. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's called First Kill. And it's based on a short story that I wrote. And it was basically because like- I'm gay and I grew up, you know, you, when you grow up, grow up in any form of marginalization, you kind of are like looking obviously for your avatars in entertainment and you usually don't get very many of them. There's like, like my, my lesbian friends and I will be like, we're just going for crumbs. We're just picking up whatever crumbs there are. And that'll often be like subtext or it won't end well, or you'll be a side character. And so I essentially wrote the Buffy, the Buffy, the vampire slayer that I wish I'd had when I was 16 because I jokingly say that if I'd had it, it might not have taken me till like 26 to come out. And so it's basically just a short story that I wrote about a teenage vampire named Juliet who needs to make her first kill in order to like fully come into her vampire power. And she has a crush on a new girl at her school named Calliope. She decides that Calliope will be her first kill because it's better if it's somebody that you like. And they end up in a closet at a house party and she goes to bite Calliope and Calliope goes to stake her in the heart because Calliope is a budding monster hunter who needs to make her first kill to like be accepted by her family. And it's, it's campy (laughs) campy and it's fun. And it's, it's not about the queerness. Like that's Mm -hmm. the whole point, right? It's like, there's a lot going on in the show and there's a lot of taboo because it's like monster hunter taboo and families against each other, but the taboo isn't that they're both girls. And so, yeah, it comes out on Netflix on June 10th, which is terrifying. It's oh eight, eight episodes. And it was like so my first exciting. one. My, but, but Addie's in development. I should be getting a script for Addie for, as a film any day now. Wow. And you're doing that with Bellatrice, right? Or with Emma uh, Roberts? Bellatrice and Emma are for the Netflix show. And then okay, Addie sorry. is- Got it. Okay. And Addie is with Augustine Frizzell and David Lowry. And Augustine Frizzell did the pilot of Euphoria. And David Lowry has just finished the new Peter Pan. And he did The Green Knight and A Ghost Story. And it's just, they're both incredibly talented. Oh my gosh. Well, now I have my plans for June 10th. So that's yes. very exciting. <laughs> Pour a glass uh, of wine and watch some very campy vampires. I'm excited. I'm totally excited. This has been so interesting. Thank you so much, Victoria. This is so fun and really, honestly, thought-provoking. will require some further introspection <laughs> afterwards. And thank you so much. I'm excited for pleasure. all your exciting new projects. 
And thank you so much for the chat. That was much, much better than the therapy that I pay so much for. So <laughs> <laughs> anytime I'll be right here at this desk. Great. You just let Excellent. me know. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Take care. Have a good day. You Bye. too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 